Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency. And before we get started on this episode, I would like to draw your attention to a special Christmas holiday offer for Americano listeners. If you sign up now, you'll be able to take advantage of this offer. It's just $79 for an annual subscription. Plus, you get a free Amazon gift card worth $20. And as an added inducement to Americano listeners, if you go to spectator.us forward slash holiday and enter the code Americano in capitals, you will get a further $5 off your annual subscription. So what's not to like? Please do sign up. I'm joined today by Dominic Green, who is Spectator USA's life and arts editor and is here in London today. You came over with Donald Trump yesterday. Not on the same plane. Not on the same plane. You went on Air Force One. And we are going to be talking about Donald Trump's arrival in London and the NATO summit uh, and all else associated with it. We've had a press conference with Trump this morning in which, much to Labour's probable disappointment, he didn't wade into the general election. He didn't say that he was going to start turning hospitals into luxury hotels. And he behaved, you know, as well as uh, Donald Trump can in a press conference, didn't he? He did. And uh, as we speak, he is probably on his best manners as well, having uh, tea at Buckingham Palace with uh, most of the royal family, but obviously not Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew, who he said he di- he doesn't know. No, and and uh, it's easy not to know him because no, he's not around these days at all. The the rumbling noise that we can hear, of course, is not the uh, sound of Prince Andrew's ancestors turning in their graves. It's the sound of the helicopters uh, as we are actually inside the security envelope as we speak. We're inside the concrete circle. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about Andrew that Trump said, I feel I feel a bit sorry for him because now everyone's putting all these pictures of him with Prince Andrew saying, you know, he's obviously lying, he doesn't know Prince Andrew. I think it's quite possible he's not lying in that he just doesn't remember having met him. Just another face, yeah. He's yeah. A, a face to forget. And, I mean, again, I know I keep banging on about this, and every time Trump c- comes over I bang on about this, but it speaks to his ability to invent his own reality. I mean, I can quite believe in his head, as he says it, he doesn't think that he knows Prince Andrew, and then and on another occasion he can be asked about it and he'll remember it and say he does know Prince Andrew. And the, the thing that reminds me about this is that he again said that he arrived before the day before Brexit and predicted that it was going to happen at Turnbury. And he was, and it's just not true. I mean, it's been debunked so many times, <laughs> but nobody has managed to get that into his head that it, mm. he didn't do it. So I, I think, you know, he is this extraordinary human being because he can just live in his own world. It is his world and we just live in it. And he does yeah. have the power in a way to create a kind of reality. This time he definitely has turned up ahead of, of the main event, ahead of a general election here. He'd also, it's quite impressive that he turned up at all for the NATO summit, given how his presidency started. Because three years ago, when he was calling NATO obsolete, he was being attacked from both left and right in the US and overseas as a, as a vandal smashing up uh, NATO. Well, and yes, and we've had this very interesting flip where now Macron is the the NATO nemesis, calling it brain dead, uh, which is quite a Trumpy quote, really. And uh, Trump is berating him, calling him nasty. 
and um, sort of the elder statesman telling off the young pup. Yeah, he called it very uh, disrespectful. And, yeah. and um, I haven't seen The Irishman yet, but I, I gather what happens to you after you're called very disrespectful by the Don. <laughs> you know, it's not nice. But then since then, in the last few hours, they've now started to play nice together on the world stage. And actually, the Macron-Trump dynamic is fascinating. If, if you look at... Um, they sort of flirt, really, on, on the global stage. I did a piece a couple of years ago calling it, you know, one of the great bromances because they, you know, they had this sort of handshaking thing. Do you remember the mm, long handshake? The arm wrestling. Yes. Yeah. And then what's really happened is that the, the dynamic has changed. and It's no longer everybody saying, oh, look at Macron. He's owning Trump. I think everybody now sort of accepts that Macron's not such a great statesman as we thought he was and that Trump may be a much more effective one than people perhaps gave him credit for. Well, in, in some ways, Macron has done a Putin in that he's, he's played a limited hand very well, in that he's exploited the difficulties of Brexit, he's exploited the weakening of Angela Merkel and the slowing of the German economy. Mm-hmm. He's used both, and also the, the withdrawal of America from the day-to-day management of Europe, which has been a big part of, of not just the Trump presidency, but also the Obama presidency. All of this has allowed a sort of mid-range player like Macron to, to um, make some big moves and, and big declarations. Yes. But meanwhile, however, Macron's popularity has sunk. It's got a little bit better, but it's now about 30%. That's considerably lower than Donald Trump's at home. And I would say Trump's chances... Well, they actually probably both will end up being re-elected, I thought. But let's talk about the NATO summit. I mean, Trump's definitely got better at these things, better in terms of playing the role of the statesman. It's a little less entertaining. There's fewer viral moments. But he is... More of a NATO figure, not just in the fact that he doesn't seem to want to destroy the alliance anymore, but he's a he's more of a, a star character for NATO now. Well, he is, and in a way, the rebalancing of budgets, which was always what he was most articulate about, wasn't that articulate about it at all, actually, but that was the focus anyway, was the question of whether the other 28 member states, I think apart from Britain and Poland, 26 of them weren't meeting that 2% of GDP defence spending, that is a way of revitalizing NATO, or, or at least giving it, you know, to use uh, Macron's metaphor, to giving it, you know, some, some oxygen and, and uh, life support, while it's still alleged to be looking for a purpose. But then for 30 years, people have been saying, what is the purpose of NATO? Will it find one or will it simply die in a, in a ditch? And, and NATO was only around for 40 years before that. So mm. that's nearly half of its entire existence. Uh, NATO has been described as being completely purposeless and yet seems to have served a function that suits the United States, its biggest funder. But it's one of Trump's real achievements in terms of foreign policy, and that he has, uh, as he tweets about today, he has got another $130 billion invested into armed defences in Europe, and that is an actual concrete achievement. But at the same time, as you say, the fact that Macron is now calling it brain dead does suggest this alliance, uh, while we all, a lot of us have a sort of nostalgic attachment to it, is it... What is the purpose of it now? Well, it's not clear because we're not sure where things will land in the next few years. But the, the geopolitical situation in the world is shifting drastically with the rise of Asian powers. And Trump, of course, has a very sensible point, which is why should, say, American troops be a tripwire on the eastern borders of, of NATO? They also have a point in saying the Europeans, in effect, are still looking to the US to be a guarantor. It's not really clear what Macron is saying. Is he saying... Turkey has broken the alliance, or the US has broken the alliance by giving the wink to Turkey to go into northern Syria? Or is there some shadow game going on between Trump and Macron to 
get on side with Putin because the major European powers, France and Germany, have shifted in their attitudes towards Russia in, well, in recent years. Well, certainly, uh, I mean, Trump's attitude to China, and particularly in, often before these international summits, he'll ratchet up the China tensions. You know, he'll, he'll do provocative things in the build-up. He has done this time. And that seems to be an attempt to switch, if you want, the West's strategic focus away from Russia and towards China. And perhaps a flaw in NATO is that they've always been rather too willing to see uh, Russia as this existential threat when it's not really in the same way a, a serious heavy threat in the way China is. No, and Trump at the press conference today said, I averted the Third World War, and he didn't mean one involving the Baltic states. He was referring to North Korea and the nuclear negotiations. Yes, he's, he's particularly proud of that because Obama told him <laughs> that there would be a Third World War. And so now he uses Obama's warning to beat up Obama. It's not clear, of course, who Macron was speaking to as well, because the other day there was this uh, terrible military accident. French special forces, I believe 17 soldiers were killed in a helicopter crash in, in West Africa. And Macron's idea for the revitalization of NATO, or rather the terms on which he'd, he'd accept it getting off its deathbed, is effectively for the other European powers to help France fight a sort of post-colonial endless war against Islamism in West Africa. And it's very hard to imagine most of the other NATO powers being that keen on this sort of thing. Go back to Trump and the election. I think Labour are still hoping that, as Paul Mason put it on TV today, that he's still jet-lagged and uh, there's there's enough hours left for him to make some monumental mistake that could win Labour the election. I know you're very jet-lagged too, Don. I'm but not as jet-lagged as Paul Mason because he's still <laughs> in the 1980s. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think this is it. Labour, I think, you know, I do think Labour have a, a, quite a good chance of winning this election, certainly a better chance than the polls suggest. But what they really, really desperately need is Trump to say something outrageous. And I don't think that's going to happen. And... Even if it does, I just think there's a there's a misreading of the British public on Trump. I think so. I mean, I, I, I meet far more people who seem to be quite enthused by his general lack of respect for the way things are, because most people in Britain, as in the United States, are not happy with the way that things are, and therefore they enjoy uh, having someone around to goad the complacency, especially the complacency of, of the media, who are you know, all set against people like Trump, or for that matter, largely set against uh, Boris Johnson. And what about the Tories? I mean, I'm, every Tory I've spoken to in the last week has been not so much terrified of the polls showing a Labour surge, but much more terrified of Donald Trump coming. And I'm talking about Westminster Tories, not kind of Tories in the country. They're terrified that Donald Trump's going to say something that, that um, is a banana skin to their to their election campaign. But again, I think I don't see why they need to be so terrified of him. I think politics is different now. I think both left and right in this country are in, and talking of Donald Trump's power to create reality around him. They both seem to have adopted these this two ways of looking at it. Either that Trump has an all-powerful positive effect that he can bestow upon Boris Johnson, or that he's going to tip a vast tide of chlorinated chicken and health service you know, investors onto, onto Britain and destroy a precious way of life. Well, but and the truth is, it probably probably neither, right? Or both, I mean, if we're lucky. But both. Yeah. <laughs>
I mean, well, so he said he wasn't interested in the National Health Service. He looked completely fuddled by this. He literally was saying, "What are you talking about?" Well, this is the other thing is that, and the last time he said it was, uh, he said, "Yes, it's on the table," but he didn't even know what he was talking about. Yeah. And I suspect at that time he didn't even know what the NHS didn't is. even know what the table was at that yeah. point. I think it, and this is a major plank of the Labour Party's pitch to the voters in Britain is that the NHS will be sold to Donald Trump, personally sold to him or a member of his family, in order to be looted if the Conservatives win the election. Again, this has no bearing upon reality. And I think we've spoken about this before, but if this is the last Trump visit before Brexit, it might be the end of a sort of strange chapter in Anglo-American relations, because Trump has always sort of appeared in these strange moments during, you know, the day after day after the Brexit referendum. He appeared when May was uh, white, her white paper for, for, for the, before the withdrawal agreement came out. And he appeared again during the Tory leadership campaign on a state visit. And then again now, of course, just before a general election. Mm. And it is sort of hilarious that he always appears entering stage right yeah. to kind of uh, make British politics even more crazy than it normally is. It is. And, and should Boris Johnson win and, and should Brexit go through as it's supposed to at the end of January, we would then also have entered a very different period. And it would be the end of this period of which there was almost well, less cost, if not no cost, to Trump's uh, appearances and his offers of, of commentary and advice and so on. We would then be into a very different period in which things would be much more hard-headed and the talk of the trade deal and so on, which has been offered by Trump and also brandished by Boris Johnson as a major selling point of of his idea of the future in Britain, that would then become a very serious matter for negotiation. And then we would see the other Donald Trump. Well, we might. And, and in fact, you know, it's it's not just Labour propaganda to, to talk about the NHS, because, I mean, it is to the extent of saying that Trump wants to sort of steal it. But certainly drug prices might actually have to be part of the discussions. And of course, the point that Labour will never admit is that Britain can always just say no, no deal on that. And NHS becomes such a sticking point now that they probably would. However, it's a bit disingenuous of Tories to say, no, nothing would ever be up for sale, because it already has been possible. And you get the impression they would probably be quite happy for market forces to nibble at the edge of what is, after all, a very large, very expensive and really quite inefficient bureaucracy that was set up in the late 1940s. Yes. Well, this is this is the sort of sacred cow of British politics that you can't uh, you have to simultaneously say that the NHS is gravely damaged from Tory lack of funding and that it's the greatest health service in the world. Well, isn't it, isn't it the Kikuyu, or is it the Maasai? I think it's the Maasai in Kenya who um, live from the milk of the cow and also slice a bit off now and then from its haunches. And, and uh, that might be the model that, that the Conservatives have in mind for the NHS. On that wonderfully surreal note, I think we'll end it. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.